Well, good morning, everyone. It's just a pleasure to uh, to worship together and to seek the Lord. How good He is! So next week we will, God willing, be starting the crèche. So that's one uh, thing to look forward to. Uh, Trudy and the team are getting that ready. So looking forward to that. Um. We'll be in Genesis chapter 22, if you'll turn there, starting in verse 20. And let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word, that you are great and, and glorious in every way. And Lord, we worship you and we bow our hearts before you and just surrender ourselves completely. Everything you've given us, all that we are, it's by your grace. And we thank you for opening our eyes to see you, for giving us new life through faith in Jesus Christ and for abolishing death for bringing life and immortality to light through the gospel. And uh, just thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus, a living hope beyond this world where we're citizens in heaven, where uh, one day we will depart and be with you, which is far better than the best we could ever experience here. And we thank you for your, your promises and for these examples in scripture that we'll read today and ask that we'd be edified and strengthened in faith, encouraged and inspired to bring honor to your name by obedience. In Jesus' name, amen. So this week we had a, a holiday on Thursday to mourn the passing of Her Majesty the Queen Elizabeth II, the longest serving monarch in the United Kingdom's history and millions of grieving people followed her, uh, followed the coverage of either witnessing the service in person or online, the funeral procession and being laid to rest by her late husband, Prince Philip uh, at Windsor Castle. And it's like they, they referred to it, I didn't watch a lot, but they, they mentioned, you know, the coffin is being taken. You know, they, they didn't talk about the queen because she's, she's no longer there. She had departed her mortal frame in death and had, as a Christian, could be in the presence of the Lord. So it's like, they got that right. And it's like, we don't have to grieve as though without hope because we have Jesus Christ. He's provided that promise of eternal life through faith in him. And that rest, that entry into eternal life, it's a glorious thing. And we can, as believers, take comfort in that, in the resurrection. Death is a sober reminder that we are not at home in this world. That one day we will leave this planet. We will go into the presence of the Lord and we will face judgment. And one is a judgment of works, the other a judgment of life or death. And uh, so it's a, it's a sobering thing, but also a rejoicing thing that we have a life given to us through Christ. Uh, and, and death really is a great leveler for all people. It's something we all share in common, whether you're a royal or a commoner. And Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes mused about this. He says, this is one thing we share in similarity with animals is that we're of the dust and we will return to the dust. Uh, but the difference is people are made in the image of God and we've been given an eternal soul and we are precious in the sight of the Lord. And while we seek to make ourselves like we want to have a good, we want people to remember us well on earth. We want to be well remembered but the primary thing is being known by God. If he knows us, deemed righteous by faith in him. And in our passage today, we have Abraham and Sarah. 
They provide such examples of faith in God. We do well to emulate, to follow because whether God kept his word by causing life to come out of a dead womb or Sarah, as we'll read about today, going to the grave, God is worthy to be trusted and praised and glorified. And he, he can bring life out of death and praise him for his goodness. And it's in his, it's in the tough times that his love sustains us and helps us to look to him and rest in his comfort. It's like God's given salvation that trumps and transcends death. We have life through Christ. Genesis 22, starting in verse 20. Now it came to pass after these things that it was told Abraham saying, indeed, Milcah has also has borne children to your brother Nahor. Huz, his firstborn, Buzz, his brother, Camuel, the father of Aram, Chesed, Hazo, Pildash, Jidlaf, and Bethuel. And Bethuel begot Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. His concubine, whose name was Reuma, also bore Teba, Geham, Thahash, and Maaka. This came after God had tested Abraham by telling him to offer his only son as a burnt offering. And when he obeyed, God spared him. He spared him from death and affirmed his covenant that yes, of you I will make father of many nations and um, you will have descendants like the stars of the sky or the sand on the seashore. Abraham returned to Beersheba with Isaac and dwelt there. And we're told that he received word that his brother had had all these kids, right? He had had eight children by his wife and four by a concubine. And here we see Bethuel is singled out as the father of Rebekah, who will be introduced to us in the next chapter because she would marry Isaac. A little spoiler there. So based on appearances, you say Nahor had 12 kids to Abraham's one. And you'd think like mathematically, of course, uh, Nahor would have many more descendants, but God's like, no, through Abraham, he's going to be the father of many nations with just one. God's able to do that. By faith in God, Abraham lacked no good thing. He had the son that God promised him. And we do read of Nahor having four children by a concubine. And I read Matthew Poole's commentary. It said, a, com a concubine was an inferior kind of wife taken according to the common practice of those times subject to the authority of the principal wife of whose children had no right of inheritance, but were endowed with gifts. So we do see concubines, uh, especially in the old Testament. It had not been expressly forbidden by God, but as we see in other places in the old Testament and into the new that uh, polygamy or having concubines was never God's plan, though culturally acceptable. And sometimes, Genesis 2, it says that a man should leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife as one flesh. It's always a man and a woman being joined together as one. And Jesus affirmed in Matthew 19, 6, so then they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. So marriage, it's a covenant before God between one man and one woman united as one flesh. And one requirement in the early church was that you'd be the husband, if you are married, of one wife. That was expressly forbidding having multiple wives. And just because we see a practice in the Bible like polygamy or having concubines, even by people of genuine faith, it doesn't mean it's worthy to be followed or emulated. And we have additional revelation in the word 
that God holds us accountable to in the, in the Old and New Testament that Abraham and Nahor did not have. And God holds us accountable to walk in the light he gives, not just to follow along what's socially acceptable. So we can apply this to more than just marriage. It's not new light that God has given, but by clarity of the whole word of God, we have more insight. So moving on, chapter 23, verse 1. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. So Sarah died in Kirjath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham came to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Then Abraham stood up from before his dead and spoke to the sons of Heth, saying, I am a foreigner and a visitor among you. Give me property for a burial place among you, that I may bury my dead out of my sight. After 127 years, Sarah's long and fruitful life came to an end. She died in Hebron, that's in the land of Canaan. And Abraham mourned and wept for her. He lamented her. He shed many tears over her. He grieved her. She was this godly, incredible woman, known for her beauty. And she was especially, she was special to him because she was his wife. She was a gift of God that he received and rejoiced in. And, and she's held forth in both the Old and the New Testaments as an example of righteousness and obedience worthy of being followed. Isaiah 51, 1 and 2, it says, Listen to me, you who follow after righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn, and to the hole of the pit from which you were dug. Look to Abraham your father, and to Sarah who bore you. For I called him alone, and blessed him, and increased him. Abraham and Sarah, they were really two of one kind. They, they trusted the Lord, and they obeyed him. Their faith in God was above reproach. They may have made, as we all do, many mistakes in life, but their faith, is nothing that could be spoken against it. It was genuine. It was real. The godly qualities of her character and faith in God, they endured incorruptible and really are something that we ought to follow. And in thinking of the passing of the queen, uh, Queen Elizabeth, I only have seen her from afar. If you ask me what I remember of her, I'd say, um, you know, her, her friendly demeanor, her smile, bright eyes looking well-dressed with a, an array of hats, right? She had many colorful hats. I'm like, wow, just a lot of hats. Um, you know, I, I, I remember coming to Australia and seeing her face on the coins and on the, the money and just, okay, this is different. This is, we're part of the Commonwealth here. And her family and her friends, of course, could say much, about, much more about her character than I can because I don't know her. Now, Sarah, she was known for her beauty. Wherever she went, it's like people are going to notice you because you're a gorgeous woman. And we have on the best authority of God that she was adorned from beauty within. Not just on the outside, but on the inside. Turn to 1 Peter 3, starting in verse 3 to verse 7. We see that her adornment was inward as well as outward. 1 Peter 3, starting in verse 3. Peter writes, 
Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart, with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. Husbands, likewise, dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. Sarah was known for her striking outward beauty, but here she's described as a holy woman having incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. And he says, that's very precious in God's sight. Now we live in a culture that doesn't consider precious what God considers precious. And we could want a lot of things or, or say like, you know, the, the, the tough guy or the, you know, the independent person or the, it, we have ideas of what we, we value. But God, this is what's precious in his sight. Gentle and quiet spirit, obedience, doing good without fear. And that's not just precious in wives, but in husbands, because notice he says, husbands likewise. Not just the women that are supposed to live this way, but husbands, you in the same way, with that gentle spirit, that quiet spirit, submitting to one another in the fear of the Lord. This ought to mark you as well. A husband is to give honor to the wife like we do a valuable or precious vessel beyond price. Peter does not say that the woman is weaker. It says as to the weaker vessel. So he's saying there's a distinction between the, the tool made of steel that you just throw into the box and slam the lid and put it in the back of the ute with all the other tools. Like it's, you know, I'm not worried about breaking it. Or that family heirloom that you're like, I'm not putting that in my suitcase. I'm going to bring that as a carry-on. I'm going to pack it carefully because I don't want it chipped, scraped, or broken. And so I am going to put a spe take special care of that item because it could be broken. So I'm going to preserve it. That's the kind of care and honor that a husband should show his wife. After mourning and lamenting the passing of Sarah, Abraham, he stands up before the people of Heth and he asks for a place to bury his dead. One thing that struck me is so often in scripture, people would always go back to their hometown. They had a family crypt and they would bury their family. Uh, you know, they would literally be resting with their fathers. Dad was buried here. Grandfather was buried here. This is where we're from. This is our hometown. Generation after generation. But by faith in God, Abraham moved and he went to a foreign land. He didn't go to back to Paddan Aram or back to Mesopotamia to bury his family or his wife. But he's saying, I am in Canaan as a foreigner, as a visitor, vi visitor and this is now my land. This is the place where I'm going to put down roots. And this is where my wife is going to be buried, where I and my descendants are going to be buried because this is our habitation. This is where we're going to stay. It's like, this is where we're going to live. This is where we will die. This is where we will dwell. It's a big statement. His identity was, was in God. It wasn't in his earthly line or his history, his background. So he seeks a burial place in the place where God has directed him, where God has moved him to. 
the place where God had given his descendants as a possession. He only had one, but descendants, plural. He's looking to that, knowing that God has provided this place for him. We see that Ruth, she demonstrated similar commitment to God when she said to her mother-in-law, Naomi, where you go, I will go. Wherever you lodge, there I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, my, your God, my God. Where you die, that's where I'm going to die and be buried. Like not, let nothing but death separate you and me. I'm not going anywhere. Abraham and Ruth, they chose to renounce and sever their, their connection to their gods and the land of their fathers because their decision was prompted by faith in God and obedience to him, believing that he was worthy of honor. Genesis 23, verse five, and the sons of Heth answered Abraham saying to him, hear us, my Lord, you are a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our burial places. None of us will withhold from you his burial place that you may bury your dead. Then Abraham stood up and bowed himself to the people of the land, the sons of Heth, and he spoke with them saying, if it is your wish that I bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and meet with Ephron, the son of Zohar for me, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he has, which is at the end of his field. Let him give it to me at the full price as property for a burial place among you. In response to Abraham's request, the sons of Heth, they said, we are glad to offer you any burial place among us. He was a mighty prince. It was an honor to him to say, yeah, you're welcome to use our burial plots to bury your dead. It shows that he had respect and good rapport among the people. And this was not an honor they would extend to everyone, but to him specially. And though the offer was generous, Abraham did not accept. He, he politely declines it, right? He bows before them. There's just really a, a politeness in this discourse. He desired a place to buy that would be the family crypt, a possession in his generations. And it's apparent that he had investigated places to go because he says, well, there's one place I've scoped out. It's owned by uh, Ephron, the son of Zohar, who owns this cave of Machpelah. And that means double. It suggests it had two chambers. And I was thinking, well, is it like a double wide trail? It's like extra big. So it, it had believed to have two chambers. It's just a suggestion. And, and he says, I want it at the full price. Who among us wants to pay full price? Yeah. If you don't have to pay full price, why pay full price? But he says, I want it at the full price. He's not looking for a freebie or a bargain or something for nothing. He wanted to pay for the property. It's interesting to me that he was content to dwell by the trees, uh, the palm trees of Mamre and at the well of Beersheba where he had dug. But the cave that he bought or wanted to buy, that's the only property that he purchased in the land of Canaan with money. And it's fitting because it's a permanent resting place. Houses and property, those change hands often. People come and go, but the burial places remain. If you drive through the city of Windsor, you'll find that in the middle of an intersection, right over to the side, there is a graveyard there. The, the houses and the shops and the businesses have sprung up all around it in the last century, but the burial ground is still there, undisturbed. No one is going to mess with that place because it's, it's a sacred place. That's where... Um, for our forefathers 
lay rest in rest. The land inhabited by the Hittites, it was included in the land that God had promised to Abraham and his descendants. And he's buying the land that's already been freely given him by God. It's another step of God fulfilling his promise to establish him in the land as he had said. We might imagine that if God leads us and God directs us to do something, it's just going to fall into our laps. Like it's just going to come for free. It's not going to cost me anything. I'm looking for something for free. But tell that to Paul. Tell that to missionaries. So Paul the apostle who work with their hands so that they can earn money to give, to support themselves to give the gospel without price. God's favor is not only shown to us in what we freely receive, but what he enables us to buy. That is God's grace, that he's provided the means to be able to pay full price for a field, to pay full price for a burial ground. And we can exercise faith in buying and selling, in giving and receiving, and all that Abraham had, all the time we have, all the resources and money we have, it's, it's given us by God and we ought to be willing to spend and to be spent for his glory in obedience to him. And that's, this is out of necessity that he is seeking this. He wanted to find a place to bury his late wife. Genesis 23:10. Now Ephron dwelt among the sons of Heth and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the presence of the sons of Heth, all who entered at the gate of his city saying, no, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field and the cave that is in it. I give it to you in the presence of the sons of my people. I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed himself down before the people of the land. And he spoke to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land saying, If you will give it, please hear me. I will give you money for the field. Take it from me and I will bury my dead there. And Ephron answered Abraham saying to him, my Lord, listen to me. The land is worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? So bury your dead. And Abraham listened to Ephron and Abraham weighed out the silver for Ephron, which he had named in the hearing of the sons of Heth, 400 shekels of silver, currency of the merchants. He's like, I'd like to meet up with Ephron to talk about that cave on his land. And, and Ephron's right there in the gate and he pipes up in the presence of them all. He says, I give you the field and the cave that is in it. What did Abraham want? He wanted the cave. He's like, you want the cave? You get the field too. I'll give you the field and you can have the cave. And as I read this, I feel drawn into a culture that's very unfamiliar to me. I don't know about you, but they're, they're doing this out in the open. It's not a private discussion hammered out by solicitors privately. This is just in the gate for everybody to hear the, the, the deal, how much is it going for? Who's selling it? Who's buying it? How is it going to be drawn up and deeded? The field and the cave. Ephron, he's like, he's honored to have been selected. And he's like, oh, I give it to you. I give it to you. And, and Abraham knows what I don't know is because I'm giving it to you with the expectation you're going to pay me for it. Which he doesn't say. Right? But he's, he's very generous. He's gaining so much face among the people because he is saying, oh, I give it. I give it to you. He says, well, if, you, if you're going to give it to me, well, then I'm going to give you something. I'm going to give you money for the field. Verse 
Abraham bows with respect before the people of the land. You know, if you will give it, then I will give you money for it. And he put a price on it as if it's a small thing. Oh, what is it? I mean, 400 shekels of silver. What is that between friends? Bury your dead. That's much more important than paying me. Now, 400 shekels, that was a premium price. And that's bartering was very real in that land where you would give like the top price and then you would haggle down and Abraham does not. He doesn't talk him down at all. He's like, all right, measure it out. It's measured out. No bartering. He pays the poor price. So the money's weighed out, exchanged, the title deed drawn up, the sale finalized, the first recorded financial transaction in the Bible. Now there's two observations I just want to camp on from this conversation where he says, the land is worth but 400 shekels of silver, but what's that between us? And I had a grand chase trying to find out what is 400 shekels of silver in modern day value. And it's difficult because there's so many different opinions. I'm like, there's obviously no consensus here. Huge amounts of difference because the weights are different. Like what kind of shekel are we talking about? Uh, what, what is the current price of silver? And that can change on the hour. So it's like, I really don't know. Uh, and really it's irrelevant. But the question He says, what's that between us? It's just money. You know, people have been divided over much less money. Over five bucks, people can have a problem with somebody. It's ironic that we can have disputes and that result in holding grudges, bitterness, and divided family and friends over money. A coworker of mine, he once felt cheated out of 20 bucks and he never forgave my boss for it. It's like whenever he was just like, you know what? I'm just going to, he always remembered that one time 20 bucks was stolen from him. He felt, and he's like, he has paid 30,000 for that 20 bucks over the past decade. Whenever I, you know, it's a hard day. I'm like, that guy robbed me. We're leaving early. Let's go. You know, type thing. By faith in God, Abraham didn't need to obsess if it was the best deal or the fairest price. He weighed out the silver on the spot because he trusted God who provided him the means to pay and that his needs would continue to be met as he sought the Lord and waited on him. And I was convicted that we can, I can, place more faith in retailers, a brand, or a warranty rather than God. I trust the brand, I trust the shop, I trust the customer service more than God. I haven't sought God in my my spending. And so that is something to be thinking about. Let not money come between us and God, us and people, to trust God. Now, second point, it says, Abraham listened to Ephron. That means to give heed to or to agree. When a buyer and seller come together to do business, usually each have their own preferred idea of a price, right? You know how much you want to spend. You know what your budget is. And they want to get as much as possible as a seller. And you want to pay as little as possible as a buyer. That's kind of how it works. If you can get it cheaper, you would. But they were in agreement. He listened to him. He weighed it out. The fact that the field was involved with the cave. He just wanted the cave, but now the field's involved. He was in agreement to pay the full amount. 
It reminds me a bit of Boaz when he went to the kinsmen. So Ruth, she's come back, back in the book of Ruth. She comes back to Israel. Naomi returns and she has a parcel of land. And Ruth asks Boaz if he would redeem her. But there was a kinsman that was closer related to Naomi than Boaz. So Boaz goes before this kinsman and he says, would you redeem this property? There's a parcel of land that Naomi's selling. Would you buy it from her? Oh yes, I'll buy it from her. Well, know in the day that you buy it from her, you must also marry Ruth and raise up seed for the dead. He's like, whoa, deal breaker. The field, I want that, but I cannot marry her lest I mar my own inheritance. Because if she had a son, then hit part of his property would go to him. And so he's like, no, I'm not in agreement. You do it. You, you redeem Boaz. And Boaz is like, good, that's what I want. Because it says in Ruth 4, 5 and 6, then Boaz said, on the day that you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also buy it from Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the dead, to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance. And the close relative said, I cannot redeem it for myself lest I ruin my own inheritance. You redeem my right of redemption for yourself for I cannot redeem it. The package deal was not going to work for him. It was a deal breaker. Abraham, he didn't see the addition of the field as a deal breaker, even though it meant more money. And he's a foreigner. He's not even a citizen of that land. But he paid. Because he had first sought the Lord. He was trusting God in this. And then he listened to Ephron. That God was going to provide for his needs. And God gave him favor among the people to even have this offer. Verse 17. So the field of Ephron, which was in Machpelah, which was before Mamre, the field and the cave, which was in it, and all the trees that were in the field, which were within all the surrounding borders, were deeded to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the sons of Heth, before all who went in at the gate of his city. And after this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, before Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. So the field and the cave that is in it were deeded to Abraham by the sons of Heth as property for a burial place. So this confirms that the property that was once owned by Ephron, the cave, the field, and all the trees. It's like this keeps sounding a bit better, right? There's more being included than he asked for. In the boundary is given him as a possession, legally confirmed. He asked for a cave to bury his family and then he has a, a field and trees and more than what he was looking for in the first place. And this is a wealthy man who is not going through systematically increasing his holdings. He's not buying up a bunch of land like, oh, that's good for a house and this will be great farmland or I could use this for that. He believed the land had already, all of it had been given him by God. God had promised to give it to him. So he wasn't going around buying it. But this was important because it's a permanent resting place for his dead. The place where he would die and be buried. So they would always occupy the land that God had promised him. They would be there. They would be at rest in the land that God had said. This wasn't Abraham's idea. This was God who put them there. Who led them to leave his father's house and Abraham and Sarah went. This is the first time a burial is recorded in the Bible. 
this permanent resting place for his wife, himself, and his descendants. And so in doing this, he's saying, this is my new homeland. This is where I belong. This is where I'm going to live. And this is where his descendants would dwell. And in the future, Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob and Leah would be buried in the same tomb. The land of their inheritance. And though Abraham grieved and mourned his wife's passing, he had this hope of a glorious future of what God had promised him. I think about looking for, for a property for sale or for rent and we consider what's going to accommodate our lifestyle. We say like, oh, how is how's this kitchen going to work? And are there enough rooms for the kids? Or uh, what about location, amenities? Uh, is it close to public transport or shops or the workplace? And or is it near the beach or the bush, right? People have different things they're looking for. You're looking for something usually comfortable, affordable, a place that's going to accommodate you well. But Abraham had eyes on something totally different. He had vision that went beyond windswept landscapes and waterfalls and pasture and um, a place where you could have a fortified building fertile valleys, he had his heart set on heaven. In Hebrews 11, 9 and 10, it says, By faith he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise, for he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. So here he is, this wealthy man, living like a sojourner, a foreigner, because this place was not his home. He was waiting for a heavenly, eternal country where the presence of God dwelt in glory. He's like, my home is with God forever. That's where I belong. Turn your Bibles to Hebrews 11, verses 13 through 16. It speaks of Abraham and Sarah. Hebrews 11, starting in verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Interesting that they're seeking a homeland and it's not where they were born. Looking for a homeland. The death of Sarah, it shows us that Home is not in these bodies. Home is not where your house is. Home isn't in a city. Home for a believer is with God in his presence forever. That's where we belong. That's where we will remain. That's where we're truly at home. Abraham, he confessed to the people in the audience of the people of Heth. Like, I am a foreigner. I am a stranger among you. Not only in Canaan, but on the earth, 
because he's looked for a, he's looking for a new homeland, a better country, a heavenly one, a place that God has prepared for him. And Abraham and Sarah, they had the means to travel. They could have gone first class back to Paddan Aram, but they stopped seeing it as home because their home was beyond this world, beyond their body, beyond anything they owned. It was with God in his presence forever. And they died believing. They never saw with their eyes the promises fulfilled that God said, I'm going to give this to you and to your descendants forever. But the writer of Hebrews here zeroes in on their faith and says God was not ashamed to call them his own because he's prepared a place for them and really all who trust in him. A place with God forever. One day our souls will leave these bodies in death or will be changed in the twinkling of an eye when we're caught up in the presence of God. But we read in Philippians 3, 20 and 21, for our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for the savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. Citizen. So I'm a dual citizen of the U.S. and Australia, which is awesome. Um, but really, my citizenship is in heaven. Like if, if my passports were to expire or be lost, if I was to commit a, a, a horrible crime, um, my, my citizenship, I've seen it, people deported back to their country of origin. Their citizenship revoked because... They have no place. We have no place here because of what you've done. But God, he gives us a heavenly country, an eternal citizenship that cannot be torn up or destroyed or revoked because he is not ashamed. What does it say? Not ashamed to be called their God. How cool is that? It's like, that, that we are sinners and God looks upon us without shame. It says, he is mine. She is mine. They are citizens. They are heirs with my son. Jesus Christ. We're born again by faith in Christ. We're made citizens of heaven. We have rest for our souls. We don't need to wander about hopelessly grieving through this life where we know where we're going and we have living hope in Jesus right now. We know he's going to bring us in. He's not ashamed of us. He rejoices over us. We have a home. There's a place we belong. And it's not here. Do you ever get that sense? Well, the scriptures tell us. Turn, we'll finish here in Psalm 16, verse 8. I love what David writes and, and the fulfillment in Christ and what it means for us as well. How easily we can forget where our home is. Psalm 16, verse 8. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your hand, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. 
These words can be true for us as they were for Abraham, for David, and we see them fulfilled in Christ. And because we're in Christ, they will be fulfilled in us. They are fulfilled in us because the Lord is with us. We are to be looking unto Jesus, right? He's before us. We're following him. We don't need to be restless on earth because God is with us and our flesh can rest in hope. And when we see that God has the power to raise the dead, he has the power to forgive sins, he has power to give new life to all who trust in him, we have such hope of eternal glory that he's abolished death and he has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. I mean, praise God that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And this is fulfilled. He will not allow us to see, our bodies will see corruption, but our souls will be clothed in glory in his presence forever. And we may not have a field, a cave or trees to call our own, but you have a home in heaven, believer. You have Christ and he has you. So instead of being caught up in the buying and the selling and the trading and the best price, let's consider the price Jesus has paid. Let's consider the promises he has made Let's consider the passages he has fulfilled and put him in our sights. Let's rejoice in the hope of his promise and in his presence that we are citizens of heaven in Christ and that we're, in, and we're at home in Jesus. Oh, finally, a place where we belong. Finally, a place where we fit in forever. Let's praise him. Lord, we thank you for giving us the hope of heaven. Thank you for Abraham's faith and Sarah's faith of walking righteously and obediently before you. That they sought you and trusted you and they, they just are such a good example for us to follow of what faith looks like in obedience, resting in your provision, trusting that what you have promised to give, it's as good as given that we can receive that new abundant life that you've um, given us through Christ, that we can receive that love that's been shed abroad in our hearts. Lord, I pray that you would uh, remove from us, we would confess those worries and cares about money when we've been divided or, or angry or bitter over, over squabbles or dissensions, conflicts, where we have been cheated, where we have been shortchanged and and it bugs us still to this day. Lord, I pray that we would confess that. We would rel relinquish all rights to that frustration. And that we'd rest in your provision, in your, in your goodness, in your kindness to us all. Because we have a home with you that's greater than, than any house that we could build or any property we could develop. Lord, and you're preparing a place for us. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your promise. Thank you that what you have promised, you are faithful to perform. That the work that you've begun, you'll be faithful to complete. And that you will not leave us in, in the grave. You will not cause us to be corrupted in this earth. But we will be risen with you, glorified forever in your presence with exceeding joy. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for all you've done. We worship you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.